Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, this is Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes, and excited to introduce you, if you are not yet familiar, with Joe Troop, who is the frontman for the Buenos Aires Latin grass group Che Apaleche. More on what we talk about after we thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk is supported by Lindsay Myers from LMNO Management, who encourages you to support independent artists by going to live shows, hosting a house concert, and buying directly from artists. Joe Troop has uh, loved bluegrass ever since he was 15 years old, and he kind of discovered bluegrass at the same time he also discovered his attraction to men. As a North Carolina native, Troop is a proud out gay man in a world that doesn't always accept him, the rural South. Through his travels throughout Spain, Japan, and Argentina, he's become an advocate for gay and immigrant rights. Joe talks about uh, all this and more, uh, about how he can expertly subvert a hot topic in his songs and in his life to a crowd that might not be openly ready to talk about it. Joe has a very interesting mind. It is wonderful to hear his about his experiences living abroad, being out in the bluegrass world, working with Bela Fleck, and his relationships to both conservatives and liberals. I hope you enjoy. I'm going to play a clip of Che Apaleche right now. This is a song called Maria, and then we'll get to our conversation with Joe Troop on Basic Folk. Maria, Maria del Agua. Maria del cielo, qué linda Maria. Maria, Maria divina, qué suerte que tuve tenerte en mi vida. Llámalo. Thanks so much for doing this and taking the time. You're welcome, Cindy Howes. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> uh, big fan of your music, so this is pretty exciting. And also, like, you, there's like so much to talk about with you. You have like 17 different narratives going on, so we could be here for a long time talking. But I'll try. I'll try to use my time wisely. That's good, so people <laughs> don't get bored. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. As if. Um, okay, so you grew up in Winston Salem, North Carolina. Which, uh, for people who haven't been there, what what is that town like? Well, it's in the Piedmont foothills. It's within earshot of a little mountain range called the Sara Mountains, which are within earshot of the Appalachian Mountains. So it's it's almost hillbilly, but it's uh, lowlander. So I know about the um, 
the pretty famous story, well, the Joe Troop famous story when you were 15, you fell in love with bluegrass. But what what about before then? Where was music in your life growing up? I, I'm kind of like a suburban kid. So I'm, I, my family is not particularly musical, but we went to a Moravian church, which is a very musical entity. Like we grew up singing Bach chorales and the music's really pretty. And I grew up. Is that a with Christian that... church? Yeah, it's it's Protestant. Um, my family wasn't particularly religious. Thank God. So we we had, you know, just a I got to experience experience church from a more spiritual standpoint, not so much a dogmatic standpoint. And I really liked the music and my older brother was very involved in the youth group and so he was very enthusiastic about it. And the traditions are nice. Like at home Moravian, we drank coffee in church and stuff. So hmm. that was really cool and then <laughs> uh at, at at school, um I got really big into musical theater. Uh, that was like the gay the gay red flag went up. <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, I was, uh, you know, I think I got to be, I can't remember. I think I was Ali Baba in um, A Thousand and One Arabian Nights or something. And that was my big moment where it's like, I was born for the stage. Is that where you really uh, um, started to sing? No, I started singing like I was always singing. I was, I had a little tape recorder. I don't remember how old I was. Maybe I was nine or something. I got a... I got a tape recorder and I just used to record myself singing into it and make up songs and then that's how I played. And and uh I remember some people yeah my parents just kind of let me let me be, let me do whatever I wanted to, you know. And I I would play piano, my brother there was a piano in the house. My paternal grandmother was a pianist, my mother's brother's a trumpet player. He was a hobbyist banjo player. Some of the more focused musicians I think were my great grandparents, but I never met them. Mm. Um but so that, I mean, there was music around, but there were no professional musicians in my family. My brother was a pianist, and he was uh, eight or nine years older than me. He is is eight or nine years older than me, and he he strung me along, and we just played around making music all the time, I, playing keyboards and singing. And but then you know when I was fifteen, I got bit by the stringed instrument bug, and and that's what I've been doing ever since. Yeah, I really love that that story. It's such an epic tale where you started. Um, you've been playing bluegrass since you were 15, that's right? Right. That's when I started. I don't know how many times you've told this story, whether or not you're sick of telling it, but I can say that you first encountered bluegrass from camp counselors when they were playing standards around a campfire at summer camp in western North Carolina, which is actually like a, it sounds like that story was like a pretty formative 24 hours for you. Yeah, it was. It, it, it was actually at a, a, my school went on a, on a fall retreat. I think it was either in September or October. And heck, I, I may have seen bluegrass before, but there was something in me that, that needed that then. I just, I don't recall. Um, and it's all kind of a blur, that whole, that whole moment in my life that whatever that year was like uh whatever was going on in 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 my brain was i i don't know when i think back on it i can't i can't remember i can't remember what sequence uh some of the events happened in but there were a couple my brother took me on a camping trip and on the way he noticed that doc watson was playing at a little roadside diner so i went in and i sat literally right beside doc watson and watched an entire show whoa <laughs> and uh yeah and i was in and i can't remember if that was after or before the camp experience where these couple counselors got out their instruments and started playing and uh, what else there, there 
Oh, my brother also gave me mixed tapes. He was very, very he was like the consummate good big brother. Uh, I can't thank him enough. He was really, really just a, a great, a great role model for me. And he gave me all these mixtapes, you know, tons of them. But on, on some of them, uh, there were there was bluegrass and there was a recording of Bela Fleck, and I just fell in love with all those sounds. I didn't, I don't even know if I knew what they were. Mm-hmm. I couldn't identify the instruments, but I just got so. Th- those three things that seeing doc Watson and then getting all those tapes from my brother that had this music on it. And then the camp counselors playing all around a fire to me, it's all the same era. I I may, it may have been over the course of a year, a year and a half. I just, I can't recall. I do really like the legend of the story, you know, even though it, it, you know, you may have told the story a bunch of like hundreds of times, like I've been, you know, looking looking things up about you and your music and reading that story like three or four different times. It just it's like kind of breathtaking. Oh, it was it was a it was a huge moment in my in my life to that point. And and also what's cool, like my niece is about to turn 14 and I'm starting to to recall how little I was, you know, not little, but also, you know, in my in my worldview at that point i was i was myself you know i i I felt like myself i don't feel that different than i did back then Mm -hmm. uh and it was just a huge moment i don't you don't get those kind of huge moments at at 36 uh that you did when you were 14 or 15 totally but but yeah it was like it was great so i i i i spent a lot of time writing that essay to try to give it a to a poetic framing that made it worthy of what the moment means to me because it meant it means so much to me that that happened So let me just read this quote that you said. You said the music sent a surge of psychedelic lightning bolts, crystal fracturing across my imagination. The cosmos had erupted through the earth. Fireside bluegrass upon a night sky was the biggest sound I had ever heard, which is so awesome. Yeah, I was really proud of that. (laughs) It was really good. (laughs) I labored over that. I really tried to make it because, you know, I, I, I love being a wordsmith, I love trying to make words do something cool. And when I when I found crystal fracturing, I was like, "That's it!" And I was like, "What the hell does that even mean?" Yeah. I asked a friend. I asked a friend, "Does crystal fracturing exist?" And she said, "It does. Yeah, sure, it does. It sounds like it does. It does to my brain." I was like, "Great," because sometimes like that native speaker kind of sixth sense of of interpretation coincides with other souls that are native speakers with that sixth sense and uh and it and it works and that's what poetry revolves around i suppose so i don't know when i found that i was like hell yeah that's what it is (laughs) psychedelic lightning bolts it's great um and then from there you know you fall i'm glad glad you like that i'm glad you like oh yeah totally so again my problem joe is that everything i would read about you i'd be like I need a minute to digest what is actually being said here and how I actually want to dig deeper into this topic because you're you just have a lot going on. So it's it's a challenge. So I want to know, like, we'll, we'll come back to the subsequent 24 hours of that camp journey. But um, okay. first for the bluegrass, um, after you just completely fell in love with it, how is that music incorporated into your life at 15? Well, I, I think... I don't remember how this got. It's such a blur. I think right after that experience, I got a, a CD from, you know, back when people still bought CDs. It was a uh, Appalachian Stomp. It was just this like bluegrass compilation CD. And as my my memory sort of 
is playing tricks on me because I, f- I feel like I even listened to that driving out of that camp. Maybe I already had the CD. I don't remember. But <laughs> all I know is that leaving that camp and leaving that experience, I had a lot going through my head, but I just knew I was <laughs> going to be a bluegrass musician. I just had to because it went with the scenery, too. I was up in Appalachia and it and it and it felt so mystical. It felt so spiritually satisfying and I felt like the the way the air filtered through my nostrils was different than what I had experienced as a lowlander and and that music was my my gateway into uh Appalachian culture and just being in the mountains and I just I love it I I I still love it I've been like rejoicing in in the Appalachians for two and a half weeks now just breathing in what a black walnut looks like and how the branches curl onto the sky and how it kind of looks like a fern because the leaves fall at these in these beautiful patterns and then you compare that to you know an an oak tree or a river birch or any other i mean it's just the biodiversity of the region's amazing and i don't know i forgot what your question was so i'm just rambling i don't know but i'll be right there it sounds great. okay. <laughs> yeah, it is great. I mean, this is, this is a, an incredibly dense forest. Of course, it isn't what it was. And there used to be a canopy stretching all the way from Florida up into, you know, well up into Canada. A squirrel could actually migrate all the way from Florida up into Canada without touching the ground. It was so wow. dense back, back, you know, pre-Columbian era. Also, uh, well, so first of all, the question was like bluegrass how it was incorporated into your life after that camp so did you actually start playing banjo yeah uh my dad took me up to the pawn shop and he and he got me a chinese banjo from camel pawn in winston-salem and i started taking lessons from a guy named gary chilton at i think it was a music loft or something like that some little music store and he was awesome he taught me a bunch and then he sent me to jody king who I took with for a couple years and then he sent me to Craig Smith who I took with for another year and a half or so and I just like I was banjo obsessed as a teenager that's all I did and uh, along the way my friend Amy Callahan gave me a fiddle my friend Anna Shirley taught me how to play a little bit and I took a lesson or two and uh, then I got a mandolin you know all hand me down or pawn shop instruments um, and I just, that's, that's all I really cared about. I just played, I don't know, God, you know, five to nine hours a day. Wow. All right. Can you easily pick up any instrument? Not now. Goodness. No, <laughs> I can't do anything now easily. But, uh, back then, I don't know if it was easier if I just, I just, you know, when you're learning something, you can, you can make a lot of progress if you're, if you have a lot of time. I was, a a spoiled kid. I didn't have to do anything. I had no responsibility. I just had to do my homework and then I could play. And I just, I really, I listen. I also listened to so much. I was such an attentive listener. I really loved listening to music. I still do, but I don't think I'll ever listen like I did back then. I maybe, maybe I remember it as, as I just, not sure. I, I don't know. I like, like I, like I said in that essay, you know, like, psychedelic lightning bolts crystal crystal fracturing in my brain it was just all it was it was so intense i was so in love with with listening as a teenager sounds like you were like very much like a sponge i guess so i I suppose so as as many others are you know i was just into what i was into 
And, uh, yeah, that's what I was doing. So also at that camp, uh, I don't know if this is true, but you discovered that you were attracted to boys, attracted to men. I, I, I digested that information at that point. That's when I realized, because I got called out. I think that's what it was. Like, beforehand, I... I would be in these like transfixed stares looking at my classmates, looking at their bodies and and some of them would look back kind of quizzically. I don't know, I just didn't realize what it meant, but it was there that I realized that oh, this is a yeah, I'm gay. I am so gay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very 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 gay and I have to mitigate these circumstances and this was 1997. So this is, you know, the year before Matthew Shepard got murdered in Wyoming. That just so you kind of have like a a historical landmark of of what the attitudes towards gay people were in rural America. And even though Winston Salem's a larger town, it's still a rural adjacent city. So the people just did not at least uh in, in my world as a kid, people didn't talk about it there was a character on the real world who had gotten famous pedro from the real world but he was dying of aids you know that was the big gay celebrity at the time so things looked pretty damn dismal yeah for it so i was really stressing that and it was at that camp that i i was standing and looking into the bathroom or whatever you call it the bathing area and i was just like wow everyone's naked this is awesome and then one of the other kids said you know no peeking and i was like oh i'm into that but they're not into that what the fuck does this mean kind of thing you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and so that was where i was i guess i was i was forced into hiding it or 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 just not denying it because i never denied it to myself Mm -hmm. i never went i I don't understand that kind of denial. Maybe I'm denying something. Uh, maybe I deny other things. I think I've experienced denial. But with regards to sexuality, I never did. So how did everyone else's feelings about homosexuality hinder your relationship to your own sexuality? Uh, completely. That That's the thing. Had it been an, uh, had there been a more welcome, welcoming environment for me to just you know, live my sexuality as a teenager, I would have, but I didn't. So I got emotionally fucked up because of it. And it's no one's fault. I mean, society changes and things are opening up, but, but hell ask the president of Uganda, what he thinks about homosexuality. It's uh, still terrible for a lot of people in a lot of, a lot of areas of the world. I'm, I'm very uh, grateful that I, that I got to, come into my sexuality when I did because it was there there had already been a huge amount of work put into humanizing gays and it's certain part in certain places in the country they already we already were um even in the late 90s uh more so than in North Carolina at least but anyhow that going back to your question you know the most common word for teenage boys at that at that time was faggot that was said all the time faggot 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 but also with malice so the there's this concept in japan called kotodama which means the spirit of the word and the spirit of of the word is particularly that word was 
you know, quite demonic, at least, at least how it was said. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, and it's also literal meaning. Of course, I read that in the dictionary cause I was a, you know, a dorky, nerdy kid. I loved, I You're loved a to, dictionary kid. Hell yeah. I grabbed the dictionary. I wanted to know what the words meant. So a faggot was a bundle of burning rods, rods thrown into a pyre. And I was like, God, this is just fire and brimstone. Things don't look good for the gays. And there was no adult ally. There was nothing. I until I will say this: my high school, I had a couple gay teachers, but they could not be out because they would have been fired. Clearly, and and in fact, I later learned that on many occasions, their their careers were jeopardized by you know rumors being spread and and questionable moral judgment uh you know questionable assessment of their morality by the hordes of people infected by judeo-christian values and anyway these people could not be adult allies though they were in a way because it was it was obvious they were gay but there there were i had one my spanish high school teacher one time, like I was testing the waters and I made it an overtly homophobic statement in class against one of the teachers that I knew was gay. And Mr. Boyce sternly reprimanded me and told me to shut the fuck up and that in his classroom that wasn't okay. And I was like, hell yes, Mr. Boyce. So I did have an ally, but I, I wasn't in direct communication with him about it. And the flip side of that is, of course, I was saying something homophobic. So it's a very interesting story, mm. but I, uh, he really had our backs. And, uh, and then, you know, in, in my elementary school and middle school, there were also gay teachers, but it was never spoken about. It was spoken about hushedly. And that's so that's just that's what's so weird about it. It was like there was some some veil about it. It was you just don't talk about that. You just don't talk about it. We don't need to rationalize this yet. You do this thing. I was going to talk to you later about it in the interview where you try to subvert a narrative in your political themes in some of Che Apalice's songs. Yeah. And it seems as though maybe that's what what you were just talking about there might have been like the seed of how you learn to so expertly do that i think i think there's something oh yeah absolutely like can you give um just a, for people who are listening maybe give an example of how you do that in a song well for example oh well doing it in a song i don't know how i do it in life is like well knowing that i'm uh, you know I, I have these i still have these experiences all the time because of the circles the because of the diversity of the worlds that I'm, I'm I'm coasting through, but you know I'll come across someone who doesn't know I'm gay unless I'm traveling with my husband, which I have been for the past couple few weeks. So I've I've seen some uh, some people in these travel in in this in this in these vacations kind of look at me like you know it's like okay you go ahead and deal with the fact that you're seeing a homosexual for the first time go ahead. I just have to deal with that. It's a pain in the ass, actually, but it, but I still deal with it. It's like, okay, here with this one, this one has to process this. Let him process it. Oh Lord! But uh, and then sometimes <laughs> when I know someone is about to find out that I'm gay, I throw some shit out there that might fuck with their narrative later, because they need it. So I'll, I'll give them what they want. I'll, I'll I'll give them the kind of highlights of of me that can kind of. You know, because we're always communicating and communi- animals communicate and they leave impressions on people, on other animals. 
uh, and that that's what we do. And I try to I try to leave a very good impression upon people, and then watch their worldview come tumbling down when they find out that I'm a homosexual. I, I've I've done that so many times. I could write a book about just that. Um, but it, you also do that in your song. Yeah, in song, I I I do that because it's. Uh, I, I I came to realize that because of this, you know, because I was equipped with a uh, like a very rural musical vernacular that I had an ability to communicate with that style of vernacular because I, I was raised Southern and, and I became a bluegrass musician. So I'm, I, I've sung so many songs in it and I know how words are used around in, in this region and just kind of giving them an unexpected twist, a, a shift in the narrative from what, the status quo would want them to go in. I, I just played around with that. I've been playing around with that for a long time, but recently I've been having more fun with it because I, I feel like I'm sort of throwing ideological bums. I, I, sometimes, I, I was in the car cackling like a lunatic a few weeks ago, just driving through Appalachia and just being like, ah, <laughs> just cause it, cause it, it, it does leave people scratching their heads and they ought to. You know, so I don't know. I just do it because I, I have to because I, I love being from where I'm from and I love this society. But there's certain things that I don't love about right. it and that dir- directly affect me. Yeah. I mean, so that's what else am I going to do? I've been cornered. So I'm going to come back at them with the only tools that I have because I'm not a fighter. I'd get my ass kicked. So I better just I try to <laughs> write write something or say something or see, sing something clever and then leave people thinking. So I. I, I got used to that from an early age, having to take a conflicting moment and intelligently diffuse the tension with some sort of psychological maneuver. You know, that's that's how I've, how I've had to navigate my world for so long hmm. that that's that's what that's a skill I've developed. Well, let me just explain for somebody listening who who doesn't know what we're talking about. Um, so Che Apaleche have a couple of songs that are very political, but you present these songs masked in a traditionally Southern mountain gospel songs, like The Wall is a good example, the Che Apaleche song, The Wall, where it sounds like a beautiful, you know, easy Southern gospel song to listen to, and then all of a sudden the lyrics turn to, like, if if this ridiculous thing comes true where Trump is going to build this wall, we're just going to have to tear it down. And and that's basically what we're talking about. So you say you say I want people who hate these things, immigrants' rights, and gay people to first fall in love with us, almost like someone would as a child, because art has that innocence and beauty that's primordial. Good word, by the way. So does it work? Like, what kind of reactions do you get? Oh, it works. It um it leaves people. It leaves the the audience that I'm targeting sometimes, if you know, when on the on the occasion that I can get in front of them, it leaves them sort of uncomfortable. It leaves them very uncomfortable, and that's what we want. We want to make them uncomfortable, because that's it. It challenges whatever they've been told, you know, and it's it's hard to get inside of that mentality. But I've been around it a lot. I, I guess I'm more inside of it than sort of the other extreme, which is the the woke leftist person mm. who has almost no empathy for these people as people. 
just the realization that, that certain thoughts, that certain ideas have never been presented to them at all in a way that they could decipher it because there's a sort of a cultural insensitivity in media in general that excludes them from any quote-unquote leftist narrative. So by giving, by twisting these traditions that have been usurped by right-wing ideologues and putting them back in the work. I, I feel like I just want to be like Woody Guthrie, man. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. just, uh, call everyone out for their shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and try to restore justice to the same people who've been disenfranchised. I do. I do think along those terms. And I know a lot of people do not agree with empathizing mm-hmm. with the quote unquote enemy, but I do, you know, I, I don't have any reason why not to, because I'm coming from a position of privilege to where I can, because I've, I've just seen the same archetypes repeated all over the world in different languages, different societies, but it's always the same thing. And there's a level of classism involved. There's a level of urban, urban media trumps rural sensibilities no, no, no. I, I really do want to I, – I hope that we can get in front of a lot of rural audiences in the coming years and present this material and present these ideas and sort of you know defuse the very tense ideologies that are forming. What about on the flip side of that, performing in front of an extremely liberal audience who maybe demonizes a conservative southern – person yeah that's equally frustrating from my perspective because a lot of people think they know they get it so much they know that everyone's crazy in north carolina the amount of people that come up to talk to me about how terrible north you know north carolina is i'm like you've you've never been there have you it's pretty it's pretty chill there's a bunch of knuckleheads that rule the roost because they've allowed the most cantankerous faction to have power so there has to be a lot of grassroots movements that sort of oust them from their power. Uh, but there's also a lot of very creative thinkers roaming around in this area as well. Um, so I, I don't know. I sometimes get frustrated by wokeness because wokeness leaves no room for for growth because they anyone has a slip of a tongue and they're automatically sacrificed in media. They get attacked viciously and it's like come on it, it, it you know they 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 have some learning to do but it, i don't know I, I i believe in the human's capacity to evolve you know mm-hmm. and i've seen it a lot in myself and in a lot of other people's So you kind of were talking about this earlier, code switching, which I wanted to know, you said the bluegrass is a very heteronormative place. I've learned how to code switch for it. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what you mean by that. Well, I can do the dude guy broman thing because I'm, I'm not, well, I might be more effeminate than I think I am, but in my vision of self, I'm kind of a dude. In my, <laughs> when I, 
as I was coming into my gay sexuality and meeting other young gays in America, they said, well, you're butch <laughs> or, or you're a bro. Those are the things. And I was like, okay. When did you finally come out? When I was 19, uh, freshman year of college, I came out to my friend Shannon, who was one of the young ladies I was probably stringing along because I was such a good friend with her. I was like, oh, I just love Shannon. I love hanging out and hanging out, you know, eating burritos. And and then we were having this really big heart to heart. And I was like, I have to tell you something. And she thought I was going to tell her I loved her. And I told her I'm gay. Oh. <laughs> it was awful. Uh, but then I got that off my chest, and then I had my coming out parade. I told like everyone. How did it feel? Felt really good. Incidentally, one of the guys who helped me inadvertently uh, was a bluegrass guitarist. He said, "You know, something troubling you, boy. You need to spill the poison. You better get it out, or it's gonna kill you." I can see it on your face. He was crazy, crazy dude, uh, train wreck of a human. But he gave me good good advice, and uh, that sort of spill the poison was something that resonated with me a lot so i just uh i did i spilt the poison yeah. and then and then and then i i you know i told my family slowly and then i moved to spain yeah and i was like okay <laughs> drop the gay bomb and then i was like all right bye <laughs> and, and spain was great it was so great yes you had all these feelings about when you first you know realized that you were homosexual you had all these feelings and fears and there were all these like taboos in in the you know the culture that you were in but then you moved to Spain and like it seemed like nobody cared well that's not entirely true because I was with a host family and I had to come out to them too and it's like being a gay person quickly proved to be like uh exhausting <laughs> had to keep coming out and coming out to my roommate and coming out to this person it's like you come out a thousand sometimes and by the thousandth time you're like all right Whatever you know, but so it, but there was it was it's a more tolerant society, Andalusia, especially when you're a foreigner. You don't have to deal with anyone else's ex expectations of you because you're above all else, you're a foreigner. Mm, right. So that was was that more your identity than being a gay man? Yeah, gay was very much a flor de piel. How do you say that? It was on the tip of my tongue because I was still, you know, like I had to communicate that. God, it's so complex because I I wanted to communicate that and be re and have people rejoice in it, but it was also the kind of thing like I you know you you say I'm I'm gay and they're like well, why are you rubbing it in my face and there's so many mixed reactions I've seen them all, it's just like you don't get you know it kind of creates this sort of lack of satisfaction there's a there's a gap between self expression and acceptance and that and then learning to cope with that was something that was the next process that was into coming out like once you start coming out and you start dealing with that you have to deal with the fact that oh just because i came out doesn't mean that everyone else is going to be in my parade and everything's going to be wonderful now i have to deal with these consequences and navigate this and then you have to deal with people's opinions opinions which you think are absolutely terrible but there's nothing you can do to change them because most people opine that way so that was incredibly frustrating, you know. So I was dealing with that as a in my early 20s, throughout my early 20s, to the point where then eventually when I was, you know, by the time I moved to Argentina when I was 26, no one gave a fuck because I was a, you know, ostensibly a full-fledged adult. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, but when you're when you're navigating that stuff as a 
kid, an adolescent, or a young adult, it's it's different. Then when you're finally, you know, on your own, it's like, ah, I'll do whatever I want. <laughs> no one can stop me. Who cares? Fuck them all. <laughs> but I love them. Fuck them all, but I love them was kind of like my MO. <laughs> That's cool. I love For the it. naysayers. Yeah. So you moved to Buenos Aires and you were teaching and performing Appalachian folk music. I read in an interview that you gave that it's tricky to play string band music in South America because of the history of the United States interfering with South American infrastructure government. Yeah, people in Latin America and probably in other places in the world, you know, because um, Cold War interventionist tactics, American meddling in meddling in Latin America has created what's happening now, even more so in the Northern Triangle, like in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. But in Argentina, they instigated, you know, the CIA and the Southern Cone overthrew democratically elected governments, worked with right-wing nutballs and dictators on the ground, Videla in the case of Argentina, Pinochet in the case of Chile, and a lot of other places had their own thing going on. So that history devastated these places these are we're talking about you know we, we we rejoice in our free speech well the country that rejo- that allows us to rejoice in our free speech infringed upon the right of free speech to other people and so i just i just find this deeply upsetting and when i am rejected because of where i'm from i don't mind it I'm like well i hope that i can show them that there is that the, the people are not the entity and that's that's kind of like my mo as I, I i down there i try to say that's that's true you know because you know sometimes i'll be playing and they'll say you fucking american bastard you know like we don't want to hear this crap this you know it's like because uh, you're playing bluegrass in buenos aires yeah th- which they they equate to cletus on the simpsons <laughs> you know what i mean yeah so um so yeah there is there's a there's some negative connotations there you know you were teaching in buenos aires and you had a few stellar outstanding students who started getting really good and then that became che apaleche and yeah because they're they're honestly like they're more talented than me all of all of them are more talented than me in some way or another or in multiple ways honestly not just as artists but also as people (laughs) so with them the synergy was interesting because it's like harmonically i'm an idiot i can't tell you <laughs> almost a single chord of a song whereas franco paul and martin picked that stuff out very quickly particularly paul and uh, paul and, and franco are very good with harmonically martin is extremely fast with with melody just so fast it's like lightning fast i play it and then he's got it and i can't i can't do that so like i started noticing i was like damn they're better than me now it kind of <laughs> sucks so it hurt my ego at the beginning but then i was like well let's just start a band and we did that, and now it's and it's, now it's good. Now we have a good working uh, thing. And since they were my students, I think they that I have cultivated. They've dealt with my crazy ass for so long. If they haven't abandoned me until now, it's it's uh, unlikely they'll abandon me in the future. And I and I'm work. I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to be a better human, and and I think they are too. And you know, you live in a van with each other for long enough. Inevitably, how big is the there's going to be tiffs. It's a 2006 Toyota Sienna named Chutrin, and it is awesome. We took out the back seats, and everyone has their little comfortable zone. 
But on the, on the second half of this tour, we're about to do, or actually, no, sorry, the, almost all of this tour, we're going to have to rent a vehicle. But we're going on, we're going on the road with a, a really cool lady named Jill, who's going to be our tour manager. She's going on the road with us. So th- now she's the first girl member of Che Apalachi. <laughs> she's going to be our tour man- manager. And we're going to be renting a, we're going to be renting a vehicle out on the West Coast in the Midwest. Oh, that's great. So Che Apalachi plays a combination of Latin and bluegrass called Latin grass. And Latin and bluegrass music... I mean, you can disagree with me, but they both have themes and attitudes that are pretty heteronormative, like a certain brand of machismo that kind of rings true for both worlds. How do you approach both of these like very straight worlds as a musician and as a human being who doesn't fit those stereotypes? I know you said you could code switch, but where are you? I'm on a on a rainbow colored unicorn <laughs> flying at them and they can't. They don't know what to do with me, but I'm there like a little bee. (laughs) Just like shoving it into their faces fabulously. That's great. Good answer. All right. Let's do one more question. Okay. Bela Fleck, go. Bela Fleck was my childhood hero. Like I I wanted to be Bela Fleck for a long, long time. And, And I studied his music and I love his music. I love his discography. I love everything he's done. I never thought I'd meet the guy because I just thought, yeah, I would never meet those people. But then Che Apalache, and also the project that I, 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 I worked, you know, I worked with a bassist named Diego Sanchez, who's a freaking genius, for six years while I was teaching the guys in my band. I was working with this bass player who was giving me a musical education and just kind of like following in the footsteps of Bela. It got to a point with Che Apalache where we were doing what we do that I realized, you know what? It is pretty clear that I have been inspired by this guy. And I, then I found the opportunity to reach out to him and he graciously chose to recognize that I, I'm kind of like continuing his world music fusion narrative, you know, and, 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 and then we got, became friends and we produced an album with him. And what can I say? Bela's the man. He's just, he's shined his light on us. He's produced us in his basement Abigail, his wife, is fantastic and very supportive. And Juno and Theo are sweet little kids. And we get to hang out there in Nashville and do this album and just, I don't know, it's, it kind of seems like a fairy tale. But now it's very much a part of our lives and our band history. And yeah, we all love Bela. We're just really, really, really grateful that he cared enough to want to do this. He's such a great human being. Yeah, he's awesome. Okay, we do something silly on this podcast called the lightning round. Okay. Where I'm going to ask you a bunch of fun questions. Go for it. Okay, cool. Well, we'll just take a break and then we'll come right back. Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Lindsay Myers and Elemento Management, who thinks if you like the artists on Basic Folk, you'll like Acoustic Troubadours McDean and Tina and Her Pony. Check them out on Instagram and Spotify. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday. You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, WIUPFM.org. All right, Joe Troop, are you ready for the lightning round? I'm ready. Tell me about your cat. My cat's name is Ty. He talks a lot because he's Siamese. And I call him, well, I used to, I talk to him like, I'm a mammal. I'm a star. And I have a song for him called, 
I could keep going. But so anyway, that's my cat. What is your coffee order? Too many. Three a day, usually. I wake up, I drink coffee. I sometimes immediately drink another one. Sometimes the first one lasts a few hours if I'm feeling like I should be nice to my intestines. <laughs> uh, I just like coffee with a little bit of almond milk. Unsweetened, please. <laughs> first album you bought with your own money? Uh, with my own money? Oh, God, I have no idea. Thanks, Mom and Dad. I don't. I, I, I couldn't tell you. Sorry. First concert? Doc Watson with my brother, age 14, Sweet. roadside. Favorite vacation? Favorite vacation? The one I just had at uh, Watauga Lake in Tennessee with my spouse was really cool. Dream collaboration? Uh, make an album with Tim O'Brien. Duh. Beatles or Rolling Stones? Eh, Beatles. If you were going to have a baby, would you want to find out the gender or weight? Would I want to wait or would I want to find out its weight at birth? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, Do you with, understand the question? Uh, I'm I'm gay. I'd have to adopt it, so I'd know it's gender. I wouldn't be. It's not like a random thing. I don't know. Maybe it is. I don't know. Sounds like we'll have to come back to that one in a couple okay. of years. Okay. I, uh, uh, I would wait, actually. Yeah, I would wait. Uh, Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars, definitely. What is the most beautiful place you've ever been to? Um, Smoky Mountains. Oh. All right. All right, Joe Troop, you did okay. Thank you. I did the best I could. That's all we can Cindy. do. Yeah, it's all we can do. This has been fun. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, thanks for going over over time and uh, just for bringing all sorts of delightful contention to the podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure. <laughs> got to just do the best you can. Joe Troop on Basic Folk, the album Che Apaleche produced by Bela Fleck is out now. It's called Rearrange My Heart and it's really lovely. I hope you listen to it. You can find show notes at cindyhouse.net. Sign up for our email list there. You can also uh, get linked to us on Facebook, on our Facebook group, Basic Folk Basics. Thanks to Adam Corey for producing Basic Folk. Thanks to Laura McCarthy. Thanks to our business manager, Lindsay Myers. And Alex Stanton of Townspeople did our music. I'm Cindy House. I'll talk to you later. Okay, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.